0: In 1952, Florence Chadwick stepped off Catalina Island into the Pacific Ocean. Her goal was to swim to the shore of mainland California, which was 21 miles away. But she was already an experienced swimmer and had crossed the English Channel in both directions. But on the day she set out from Catalina Island, it was foggy and chilly and she could barely see the boats alongside her. She swam for 15 hours and then begged to be taken out of the water. Her mother, who was in a boat alongside her, told her she could make it. But physically and emotionally exhausted, she felt unable to continue. And so she stopped swimming and she was pulled out of the water. But once she was in the boat, she discovered why it was that everyone was so reluctant for her to be taken out of the water. Because having pleaded to be taken out, she found that the shore to which she had been swimming was a mere half mile away. The next day, she gave a press conference to explain her failed attempt. And in the course of it, she said this, all I could see was the fog. But I think if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. And those words, I think, could be applied to the lives of many Christian believers today. Because when it comes to the future, that God has for us, and when it comes to the hope that he has given us in Christ, that future and that hope is for many shrouded in fog. And because we do not have a clear vision of the shore, we find ourselves in a position very similar to that of Florence Chadwick. I'm currently working my way through a book by an old Puritan writer called Richard Baxter. I'm doing it with a friend who has read it twice. And he's my interpreter and guide because it's written in 17th century English and it runs to 672 pages. It's called The Saint's Everlasting Rest. And at the beginning of the book, Richard Baxter defines what he means by this rest. He says, rest is the end and perfection of motion. The saint's rest here in question is the most happiest state of a Christian, having obtained the end of his course. And later in the section we happen to be reading on Friday morning, Baxter says this, Every soul that hath title to this rest doth place his chiefest happiness in it, And make it the chief and ultimate end of his soul. For this rest consisteth in the full and glorious enjoyment of God. And then he poses this searching question. He says, let me ask you then, dost thou truly in judgment and affection account it thy chiefest happiness to enjoy the Lord in glory? Or dost I not? What would you say? That's why as we conclude this weekend where the theme has been enjoying God, I want us as Paul urges us to do in Colossians chapter three to set our hearts this morning on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God or as we read in 2 Corinthians chapter four to fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen. Because what is seen is temporary, whereas what is unseen is eternal. And I want you to ask yourself whether the chief and ultimate end of your soul is to enjoy the Lord in glory for all eternity in what Richard Baxter calls the saint's everlasting rest. But what will that rest be like? And what will we experience when we take our last breath and pass from time into eternity? I want to suggest four things. And because this theme is so broad, I'm going to draw from a number of different passages of Scripture rather than stay in one place. But I won't take you in a paper chase because they will come up on the screen. And here's the first thing we need to know if we are believers and that is that when we depart this life, we are with Christ. You'll remember, I'm sure, the gospel accounts of the two criminals who were crucified alongside Jesus. Initially, the two of them heaped insults upon him. But as time went on, one of them underwent a change of heart. He rebuked the other man. And he then cried out to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. And notice Jesus says it will be today. Today, you will be with me in paradise. In other words, following his death, his spirit would experience an immediate translation from earth to heaven where this man would be with Jesus. Jesus. We know from the gospel records that Jesus died before the thief and he would have heard Jesus say, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. He then died a short time later after the soldiers broke his legs. But having cried out to Jesus in the closing hours of his life and having been given that promise by Jesus, the spirit of this man, when he died, went immediately to be with him because that's what Jesus said would happen. And this serves as a prototype or a paradigm for the death of every Christian believer. One of the things I had to do following my mother's death just over a year ago was to provide additional wording for the headstone which she had erected following my father's death. She had taken responsibility for it then. I hadn't been to his grave since the headstone had been put up and only saw it on the day of my mother's funeral. I discussed the additional wording with the undertaker and then I thought of what I would put at the bottom of the headstone since the original inscription had no Bible verse. And the phrase that immediately came to my mind was the one which Paul uses in the passage that we read when he says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And when a believing loved one dies and the question arises in your mind, where is he now? Where is she now? Your first response should always be that they are with Christ. They're away from the body, which is why those who love them will lay their body to rest. But for the Christian to be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. That's the first thing we need to know about the saints' everlasting rest. Because believers who have died are now with Jesus. But here's the second thing. If we are believers in Jesus, not only will we be we with him when we die. But in his presence we will be fully conscious. Some people can be confused about this because of the way in which the New Testament describes death as a sleep. And there are some people who've taken this analogy to mean that the souls of believers go to sleep when they die and that they remain in that soul's sleep until the return of Jesus when he will wake them up and give them their new resurrected bodies. But when the Bible uses the language of sleep, it's referring not to the soul but to the body. That's why we speak of the body as being laid to rest. But the soul is fully alive and fully conscious in the presence of Jesus. You will, I'm sure, remember what Paul wrote in his letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, verse 21, when he said that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He then goes on two verses later in verse 23 to say, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. And what he's saying in these two statements is that the believer experiences in the presence of Jesus a conscious enjoyment of that presence, which is better than the very best that you can know as a Christian believer in this world. Think about that. Think of all the blessings that are yours in Christ Jesus here and now in this life. You've been born again, you've been justified by faith, you've been reconciled to God, you've been adopted into his family, the spirit of God lives in you, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. These things are yours here and now as a Christian believer and there's no way in the world that going into unconsciousness or soul sleep is better than that. That would be so much less. And that's why Paul says that what is in store for a believer immediately after death is not less, but more. It's better by far than all you have of Christ right now. And what is better by far is that your faith will be turned to sight. What is better by far is that your pain, your grief, your failure, your persecution will be over. What is better by far is you will sin no more. What is better by far is that your spirit, being made perfect, will constantly enjoy the presence of Jesus. What then will it be like for believers when they enter in to their everlasting rest? The first answer is they will be with Christ. The second answer is that they will be fully conscious. And that brings us to our third answer, which is that believers who have died are actively engaged. This is a reality that people often struggle with because in death, the soul is separated from, From the body. And it's impossible for us to imagine what that is like because everything that we experience here in this life is experienced through our bodies. We enjoy walking or running. But how do you do that without legs? We enjoy listening to music. How do you do that without ears? We enjoy the beauty of the sun coming up over the horizon or the twinkling of the stars in the night sky. But how do you do that without eyes? All we do in this life is mediated through the body, but the bodies of believers who have died have now been laid to rest. And they won't receive their new bodies, their resurrected bodies, until Christ comes again. So what are they doing now? How do they function without a body? Here is something that has helped me towards an answer to that question. And that is to think of those other created beings who also dwell in the presence of God, but who do not have bodies. And those created beings are the angels. In the book of Hebrews, they're described as ministering spirits. So they don't have bodies. Wayne Grudem his systematic theology says this about angels. He says angels are created spiritual beings with moral judgment and high intelligence but without physical bodies. Here then are creative beings who have never had bodies and never will, but who are actively engaged in the service of God. Now, our destiny is not to become angels. Don't mishear me. And please don't believe those mushy songs and sentimental poems that speak of how heaven got another angel the night you left this world behind. Human beings do not become angels when they die. God has made us body and soul and we are not destined to spend eternity as disembodied spirits. But the activity of the angels in heaven as spirits without bodies points us nevertheless to the kind of things that the spirits of believers described in the book of Hebrews as the spirits of the righteous made perfect are able to do in the presence of God as they wait for that day on which their souls will be reunited with their bodies. For example, angels see, and so do believers in heaven. Jesus says in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, verse 10, see to it that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. Angels are spirits. They do not have eyes like we do, but yet they see the face of God. And the same is true for our loved ones who have have died in the Lord. Faith has now given way to sight. They will have eyes in their resurrected body, but right now they see and they behold the face of God in the same way as the angels do. Angels speak. And so do believers in heaven. In the book of Revelation where the apostle John is given a glimpse into the throne room of God. He says, then I looked and I heard around the throne the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. But how do you speak without a larynx? How do you sing without vocal cords? I don't know. But angels do. And they declare the glory of God. And the same is true for those who have died in the Lord and who are now in the presence of Jesus. And thirdly, angels rejoice. And so do believers in heaven. In the parables of the lost sheep and the lost coin, which Jesus tells in Luke chapter 15, he says at the end of each parable, I tell you, there is joy in heaven. Or joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. People sometimes ask if those who are now in heaven with Jesus are able to see what's going on here on earth. I can't find anything in the Bible which suggests they do. But if there is joy in heaven on the part of the angels over one sinner who repents, and if that joy is ringing out in heaven as it undoubtedly is, then it seems impossible to me that our loved ones who are already there would not themselves share in that joy together with the angels. And fourth, the angels worship, and so do believers in heaven. Again, in the book of Revelation, chapter seven, John tells us, as he looked, all the angels were standing round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces and worshiped God. but it's not just the angels. Because in the preceding verses, John sees a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne of God and before the Lamb and crying out with a loud voice Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I love the hymn by John Newton, which begins with the line How sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. We sang that hymn at my father-in-law's funeral. And I don't know about you, but I find that at funerals, the words of certain hymns become all the more rich in meaning. And never more so than in the penultimate verse of Newton's hymn, where he writes, Weak is the effort of my heart, and cold my warmest thought. But when I see thee as thou art, I'll praise thee as I ought. And that's the experience of each and every believer who has died in the Lord. They're actively engaged in worship before the throne of God and of the Lamb. So the angels in heaven see, so do the saints. They speak, so do the saints. They rejoice, so do the saints. They worship, so do the saints. And fifthly, angels inquire, and so do believers in heaven. In the opening chapter of his first letter, the apostle Peter writes of the salvation that was prophesied by the prophets, which included both the sufferings and the glory of the Lord Jesus. And he says, referring to the prophets, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And then he adds, even angels, Long to look into these things, because angels have intelligence, and their minds are constantly engaged in seeking to fathom the wonders and the glories of God. Charles Wesley captures this so well in the hymn and Can it Be." You remember how he puts it? "Tis mystery all." The immortal dies, who can explore his strange design? In vain the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. Tis mercy all, let earth adore, let angel minds inquire no more. And if there are aspects of the being and the character of God that angels have still to discover, the same is true of believers in heaven as they constantly discover more and more of what Paul describes as the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. And I find this helpful as I think about those who are now absent from the body and present with the Lord. Because there are those of us, I think, who imagine that life after death, even in the presence of Jesus, takes you into some kind of shadowy existence. But that's not the case. Otherwise, Paul would not have said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In this world, the soul lives through the body. But the body, as well as facilitating the life of the soul, also places limits on the life of the soul. Do you remember... What Jesus said to Peter and James and John in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was in great anguish as he looked into the cup that he was about to drink. And they were there ostensibly to watch with him, but they found it much easier to sleep than they did to pray. And Jesus said to Peter, could you not watch with me one hour? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And where's the limitation here according to Jesus? It's in the flesh. And that's so often the case. That the will of a believer's spirit outstrips the capacity of his or her flesh. So that you never quite make the progress in holiness that you wish you were able to make. That's what Paul wrestles with in Romans chapter 7, isn't it? When he says, for I have the desire to do what is right but not the ability to carry it out. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in the members of my body another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there surely he is anticipating the experience of believers in heaven because when a believer goes into the presence of Jesus. Their soul, their spirit is made perfect. They're no longer tainted by sin. And they now know what Paul meant when he said of those whom God chose in Christ before the foundation of the world that they would be holy and blameless before him. And this is what they now are. And they serve him day and night. What then will it be like when believers enter their everlasting rest? For one thing, they're now with Christ. For another, they are fully conscious. And they're also actively engaged. And fourthly, believers who have died are eagerly waiting. We need to remember there is a big difference between heaven as it is now and heaven as it will be when God makes everything new. With a new heaven and a new earth and a new creation which will be the home of righteousness where body and soul will again be reunited, but that is still to come. And we need therefore to always remember, and it's a wonderful thing to think about, that for a Christian there is a good, better, best pattern to the Christian life. To be in Christ as a believer is good. And when life is at its hardest and its most difficult for you, if you are in Christ, you are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Him. That is good. But to be with Christ is better. Better by far, as we've already seen. Better than anything you have known or can know in this world. But even for those who are now in heaven, the best is still to be. Because they're waiting with eager expectation for that day when body and soul will be reunited. Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. And there he's talking about the resurrection body. And this is what believers in heaven are waiting for. You see it in Revelation chapter 6 verse 9 where the apostle John says that he saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. So here are the souls of believers in the presence of Jesus. And in this instance, they are those who have been martyred for their faith. But notice what they're saying, verse 10, because these believers in heaven with Jesus are crying out to God, how long? How long, O Lord, until the evils of this present world are brought to an end? how long O oh lord until the sufferings of your people will be over how long O oh lord until king jesus returns in glory and we get to come with him how long O oh lord until he puts all his enemies under his feet how long O oh lord until there's a new heaven and a new earth that will be the home of righteousness and they are told they must wait for the time has not yet come but come at will For one day the last act of violence will be perpetrated. The last martyr will be killed and God will say to the son, that's it. And the Lord Jesus will come in power and in great glory. Those who have gone ahead will come with him. Those who are alive when he comes will be joined to him and reunited with them. And together they will be with the Lord forever. And they will receive their resurrected bodies of glory. What is it like for those who have died in the Lord to enter into the saints everlasting rest where they will enjoy him forever? I hope at least you now have the bones of an answer because believers who have died are now with Christ and in his presence they are fully conscious and actively engaged but they're also eagerly waiting for the day of resurrection when body and soul will be reunited and brought into the city of God, the new Jerusalem where everything and everyone will be made new. Some years ago, we had an associate minister in Hamilton Road who came to us from Australia. His name was Stephen Calder. The initial contact was established via email. We then arranged a video conference call in Belfast because there was no such thing as Skype or FaceTime back then. And finally, we invited him to come over to Bangor. He came on his own and he stayed in our house for 10 days. Everywhere he went, he brought his video camera with him. And he recorded pictures of Bangor and of Hamilton Road. He then had an interview with the Kirk Session and he was subsequently offered the post of associate minister. But just before he returned to Sydney, he went to see a house in Little Street, just up the road from the church. It not only had the advantage of being close to the church, but it was also fully furnished. I got the keys from the owner and went with him to show him round. As we entered the hallway, he immediately switched on his video camera and he began to give a running commentary for the benefit of his wife, Sandra. He did the same in every single room. And when he went back to Australia, he showed Sandra the video footage he'd taken of the house. And having seen the pictures, she said they should take it. And even though she'd never been to Bangor, even though she'd never stood in that house, she said that when she got here, she felt it was a place she already knew. And she felt she was at home. That's what the New Testament encourages us to do when it comes to heaven. We've not been there. And we can scarcely imagine what heaven will be like, but through the pages of scripture, we have been given glimpses of what Jesus calls the Father's house. And that is what we are to set our hearts upon so that it becomes our chief and ultimate end. C.S. Lewis in his chapter on hope in mere Christianity says that to make the most of the transient things of earth We must learn to want something else even more. And he puts it like this. Aim at heaven and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth and you will get neither. And we who name the name of Christ need to learn to love glory more than we love this world. And how do we get to where we want glory more? Well, through admitting with Paul that the things that are seen are transient. Because death will destroy anything else in this world I set my heart upon. And having accepted that reality, we then fix our eyes on what is eternal and recognize that what Paul describes as our light and momentary troubles here in this world are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. Do you believe that? When I was a little boy in Sunday school, one of my favourite hymns was number 661 in the old Presbyterian hymn book. Some of you my age and older might remember that hymn. I don't think I fully understood the words when I sang it then. But the lady who wrote it wonderfully combines doctrine and application in the space of just two verses. And with this I finish. She wrote, Lord, a little band and lowly, we are come to sing to thee. Thou art great and high, and holy. Oh, how solemn we should be. Fill our hearts with thoughts of Jesus and of heaven where he has gone, and let nothing ever please us he would grieve to look upon. For we know the Lord of glory always sees what children do and is writing now the story of our thoughts and actions too. Let our sins be all forgiven. Make us fear whatever is wrong. Lead us. On our way to heaven, there to sing a nobler song. That's by in prayer. Gracious God, we recall how the Lord Jesus said to his disciples, You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Loving God, quicken our hunger and our thirst for that which is to come. Help us to seek the things that are above where Christ is and to set our minds not on the things of earth, but on the things of heaven. That we may anticipate the day when we will arrive in that place where nothing defiles, where there's no grief, no sorrow, no sin, no death, no separation, no tears, no fears, no worry. And where Christ is all and in all. And in the meantime, with all that our feeble hearts can muster, may we seek to live in a way that continually expresses the life that we already have in Christ. May our minds be fixed on him, our hearts be surrendered to him, and our hands be committed to his work. And may we commend him to others by our words and our deeds until that day when we enter heaven receive the saints rest and see our savior face to face for we ask it in his precious and worthy name. Amen.